So I picked up my little three-year-old and we walked outside, walking down the street. And he said, you know, where's my dad? And I said, he's not coming home again. He, you know, he died last night. And he pounded me on the chest. And then he laid his head down. This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. You're listening to Beyond the Picket Fence, where you're invited to take a break from keeping it together. Let's get real. This week, I introduce to you my new friend, Charlene Clark-Paul. We are both moderators in the Facebook group called Worldwide Unified. If you're not in that group, you should be. Go find it. We were chatting on the phone the other day, and I instantly fell in love with her. I think you will, too. I had heard from some other moderators around the group that she has an incredible story, but I had no idea what that entailed. After our phone call, I knew it was going to be a beautiful episode on grief. So what event changed Charlene's life forever and created this wonder of a woman? Let's go beyond her picket fence and find out. I'm so excited to have you here. Charlene, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you. I'm glad to be here too. And it was so much fun to finally be able to talk to you after, you know, kind of doing our moderator thing. But I married for the second time. I was widowed when I was 28 years old and I had a three-year-old son and a one-year-old son. A couple of years later, I met the man that I'm married to now. We had four more kids. So we've got four sons and two daughters. And as of Monday, we now have 14 grandchildren with two on the way, one in November and one in February. I also just published a book called Purple Jammies. It's just kind of a baby shower, Mother's Day gift, something like that. So that'll be coming out pretty soon. But I love talking to people. I love working with people. I love trying to help people find hope. Because if you don't know, because this world is really pretty crazy and out of whack right now. And so I think that helping people find hope, helping people realize that they're not going to be able to change the world, but they can change their little corner and they can change themselves and that it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. And life is hard and it's supposed to be hard and it's never going to be easy, but that's okay. You can still be happy. So that's kind of my thing. Oh, I love that. That is so true. I love how you're like, the world's out of whack, if you haven't noticed. If you haven't noticed, what rock are you living under and where can I find it? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So it's crazy how we kind of know each other, you know, but I don't really know your story. Then you said you were widowed. I had no idea. So will you just start your story wherever you feel like it starts? All right. I was raised in Las Vegas, actually on the way outskirts of Las Vegas, which is right in the middle of Las Vegas now. And we raised farm animals, rode horses all over the desert and just, you know, had a lot of freedom. I grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but my mom and dad weren't active. My mom kind of back and forth, my dad, not at all. And so I could go if I wanted. I didn't go if I didn't want. I had a couple of friends that were very active and from active families and, and they kept me going. Plus, when I graduated from primary at 12 years old, Two weeks later, they called me to be the primary pianist. And that's how leaders kind of kept me active in the church was through music, through playing the piano, singing speech festivals and different things. And then I graduated from high school. Charlene met a guy from down the street and dated him for the summer. That relationship didn't work out. But that guy, he had a best friend. Well, that best friend had caught Charlene's eye. One evening, her boyfriend and his buddies were having a big cookout, and Charlene was there to help. It was fun. I'd never met his friends before. And when Martin walked in the door, I remember thinking, wow, that's like one of the nicest male persons, I mean, and the nicest looking male persons that I've ever seen. And then thought, okay, this is, he's your boyfriend's best friend. This is not going <laughs> to work. And so things went, you know, we all got to be friends, did things together and stuff. And then toward the end of the summer, when school was getting ready to start, my boyfriend was a teacher at the school and he let me know it wasn't going to work out. There were a lot of reasons. And so I called his friend and said, <laughs> hey, my dad's got a car that, that he'd like you to take a look at because it's not working young stories, right? Whatever, whatever it took. <laughs> yeah. And so he came over to look at this car and he said, yeah, I think everything's okay with it. It should be just fine. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going dancing. 
I can't dance. I have rhythm from the waist up. I can play the piano. I can play the guitar. I can sing. I got lots of rhythm for that, but there's a disconnect in my feet. So why I thought I was going to go dancing, I don't know. But I'm going to go dancing. Would you like to go? And he said, yeah, but I got to go home and shower. And I said, well, I can go and wait for you. So there she goes with him up to his house. As he got ready, Charlene sat and watched TV. And they went out dancing that night. All I can say is, you go, girl. And then when the boyfriend got home from his trip of trying to decide whether we were going to stay together or not, and he called and he said, yeah, it's just not going to work. And so I said, okay. And I called back and he answered the phone. I said, is Martin there? And he said, what do you want to talk to him for? I said, I just wanted to talk to him. And so we talked, we got together and we just stayed together. It was a good thing. It was, it was a little rough on the friendship for a while, but we were all friends. After a long time, stuff like that, it's like, what even were we thinking? <laughs> yeah. When you're yeah. young, it feels like the whole world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you tell people that, well, how'd you meet your husband? Well, he was my boyfriend's best friend. <laughs> okay. Winning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we got married about three years later. He wasn't a member of the church. And I just kind of walked away from it, not for any particular reason, not for any lack of belief or lack of it just, you know, just the support wasn't there. And I played softball on Sundays. So I had my oldest son a couple of years after we were married. And then when I was pregnant with my second son, for about the last three or four months of the pregnancy, I just kind of kept having this thought, you know, if something were to ever happen to Martin, that was my husband, I'll go right back to church. Thinking, where did that thought come from? And it's so weird, you know, I had my son. I kept having those thoughts. Martin was an electrician. When their son was about a year old, he had a service call about two and a half hours away from where they lived. They decided to leave the kids with Charlene's parents overnight and go together. On the way back, they got into an interesting conversation about what Charlene would do if anything ever happened to Martin. It was the strangest conversation where we would have the funeral, what to do with insurance money, what to do with the house, what to do, and, and you know, the whole way back. And it was just, it was a good conversation, but weird, really strange. And then we went to bed, woke up the next morning. He left with a friend to go pick up his business partner from a Colorado River rafting trip. I have a hard time saying that. And as he drove away, I remember standing in the street thinking, I wonder if he's going to come home and going, okay, the thoughts have got to stop. Long story short, they were late, lots of phone calls, lots of searching, lots of you know, about 11.30 that night, I finally called the right number and found out from the Kingman, Arizona Sheriff's Department, he wouldn't talk to me, he talked to my dad, that my husband had been killed in an accident and his business partner had been killed as well. And so, I mean, I crumbled up for about 30 seconds and then I got up and said, I got things to do, I got work to do and I need to go across town and tell Becky that both of our husbands are dead. And... When I got home from running across town and, you know, standing in my living room and just, I told my dad, you know, I said, I, I refuse to let this destroy me. I refuse to let life kick me in the rear end and destroy me. I will figure out how to make this one of the most positive things that's ever happened to me. And I couldn't believe that was coming out of my mouth. And my dad was horrified just this look on his face. I didn't mean to say that I would make it the happiest thing, but that I was going to figure out how to get through it. And I stood there and I, you know, I was raised in the church. I knew about the plan. I knew about the, you know, life goes on. This isn't the end, but it felt like the end. It was dark. It was bad. Charlene's parents had picked the boys back up that morning after Charlene had found out. Eventually, the boys came back and it was time. My dad kept saying, let me tell him. And I said, no, I'll tell him. So I picked up my little three-year-old and we walked outside, walking down the street. It happened in August. And so it's hotter than Hades out there. And he said, you know, where's my dad? And I said, he's not coming home again. He, you know, he died last night. And he pounded me on the chest. And then he laid his head down. And I have to say that through all of this process, that was the hardest thing for me to do was to tell him and then figure out how to work this out. I had a tremendous amount of support from 
my ward members, of course, I grew up in Las Vegas. We had friends. My dad was in construction. We knew people all over town. Great deal of support, with the exception of my in-laws. And I will say on the out, right at the beginning, they are good people. They are very good people. They raised a good family. My husband was the second of 10 kids. They could not deal with what was going on. They were angry, and they just zoomed that anger in on me and um, wanted to prove that I was an unfit mom, take my kids from me. So you lose the whole family. I lost my husband. I lost almost the entire family at the same time. And after a year or more, finally decided that I just couldn't do it anymore. Through lots of prayer and fasting and counseling and talking to church leaders and others and a doctor who basically told me if I didn't do something, it was going to make me crazy and my kids would get taken from me. So I severed all ties with them. And that was hard. And it's been hard over the years and difficult to explain to the, the kids. Sometimes we tried to put it together a couple of times and it just didn't work. They just can't get past that, that anger and that sorrow and needing to blame somebody. And I moved forward. How long were you married to him before he passed away? Uh, we were together 10 years and married for six and a half. Oh my gosh. In my mind, I pictured like a starry-eyed romance. They went out dancing, they had two babies, they were so in love. Then I thought about my 10 years of marriage with my man. Yes, we have a great time and we love each other, but it's not always easy and wonderful. So I wanted to know. Obviously nothing's perfect, but was that like a starry-eyed romance? Like you guys were in love, it was a good marriage or was it rough? You know, he was everybody's best friend and it's hard to be married to everybody's best friend. I spent probably two years of my life before we got married crying every night. And it just, we had a lot in common, but we had a lot not in common as well. And I just decided that for a lot of reasons, I needed to make the relationship work. And so I did. I mean, we had fun together. We raced, I used to race cars. We raced cars together. We went on trips together. We four-wheeled together. We did, we did a lot of things. Like I said, a lot in common, but the Friday night, Saturday night with the guys, not knowing when to come home after work, that's one thing we didn't have in common. And so the Christmas after I had my second son, he was born in May. And so the Christmas, right after Christmas, he went over to help his brother with something and he was going to come home. We had, I was going to fix dinner. We're going to have a great, you know, and he didn't come home. And he didn't come home and he didn't come home and he didn't come home. When he finally called me, it was like three and a half hours late. And he said, hey, I'm on my way home. And I knew he had been drinking again and just a little bit toasted. And um, I said, well, your dinner's in the freezer. You're too late. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not too late. I'm not too late. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there. And I had just had enough. This was on a Friday night. And I loaded the boys up in the back of my blazer, put them on the floorboards, made a bed because they were, had a, were already asleep. And I drove to the place where his work truck was and met him there. And he was pretty upset. You know, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? He said, get in. So we went for a ride and I took him on a big, huge loop that if he had gotten mad and gotten out of the car, it would have taken him days to walk to our house. <laughs> Not days, but definitely hours. And I just said, I'm really done. I can't do this anymore. I am living as a single parent with none of the benefits of being a single parent. So Monday... I'm going to go talk to you. And it was a family friend and I'm going to file for divorce. And this is how it's going to be. I said, I'll stay in the house. I'll take the blazer. The kids are going to stay with me. You can see them anytime you want, but I'm done. And I don't know if you've ever been around people that drink, but there comes a point when they're very, very drunk that they try to blink themselves sober. It's like, <laughs> you know, this, this blinking things. And he did that. And he said, wait, 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 you're serious. I said, I'm I've been serious every single time I've told you that I'm tired of this. What makes you think I'm more serious now? I said, because you're not yelling and you're not crying. I said, I don't have any energy. I can't do it anymore. I'm just done. So he, he said, you got to give me another chance. It's like 10 years isn't enough. And he said, no, 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 please, please, please. So we set some ground rules. You know, you've got to come home after work. If you're not going to come home after work, you got to call me. Friday nights and Saturday nights need to be family nights as well. I mean, go out with the boys once in a while, but you have a family and you need to, you know, you can go days without ever seeing your kids because you get up early in the morning, you get home way late at night and you never see them. 
And he said, no, no, you know, it'll change. It'll change. And I said, okay, we have one week and then we will do this week by week by week. And the first week that it goes back to what it was, I'm done. And, you know, from then until the day that he died, it was the best eight months that we had ever spent. It was good. We were in a good place and things were going very well. And I was a little bit angry about that until my dad said, yeah, but would you have wanted him to go when it was bad? Maybe not. No. So, yeah. Then his parents would have been right and you would have been like, yes, she's gone. I'm just kidding. You probably yeah, wouldn't exactly. have been like that. But <laughs> yeah, well, and, and who knows what would have happened to my kids then. So there's times as a angry wife, I don't know, there's times in marriage. I think marriages can just be so hard. But there is a time when I was like crying in my closet, like, I don't want to get a divorce. So could you just take him <laughs> so I can be out of this? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'm so glad that things were going so good. Like you had a good, amazing eight months, but I also, that just made it so much harder when he passed. So it was a yeah. marriage that you were wanting to stay in at the point when he passed away. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No intention. We were getting ready to build a house. We were just waiting for the financing, which came in. My dad's ex-partner was the loan officer and our, you know, our approval came in about two weeks after he died. I forgot to cancel that all thing, you know? And so we were, we were going to build a house and I buried the house plans with him because Aww. I was never going to build the house. That was his dream. And so, yeah. I'm so grateful for Charlene's transparency. I've said it a thousand times and I'll probably say it again, but marriage can be so hard. If you're listening to this on release date, it is actually my 10 year anniversary. Man, we have been through so much together. Good and bad. I can honestly say, like Charlene, it's a marriage I have wanted out of before. <laughs> but now, I want it to last forever and always. Justin is the person I want to love, fight with, parent with, apologize to, play with, experience this life with, forever. He is it for me. He is all the things. If this is even a glimmer to how Charlene felt, I can't even imagine the pain that night of Martin's passing. So... You said it was an accident, a car accident, or was he on the river? It was a car accident. My brother was supposed to have taken them. My husband's work truck was in the, the shop, and it was so hot. His partner didn't want his wife to come down on the river. I mean, it's, it's blistering hot in southern Nevada and over by Kingman and down on the river is just ridiculously hot out by the dam out there, you know. So they decided that Martin would pick him up, but his work truck ended up in the shop. So my brother was supposed to drive him down, and the last minute, Decided he wanted to do something with his girlfriend instead. And so they called Martin's cousin's nephew to drive them down. And I have no problem with Barry because he drank. But if he was the designated driver, he drank Pepsi. And so I was never worried about that. But he was probably driving too fast on this dirt, rocky road. He hit one of the dips, overcorrected, and ended up in the south shoulder and rolled Ended up on the wheels, but both men were thrown out. His mm -hmm. partner died instantly. I found out after getting a hospital bill six weeks later that my husband had died in life flight. And which that was another one that bothered me because it's like, okay, hold on a second. So you couldn't have fought. You didn't want to be married anymore. I mean, you just go through these such weird, crazy things. But the kid that was driving also, he was really... They lost him in the helicopter three times before they got him to the trauma center in Las Vegas. And he about lost his leg. He just went through a lot of stuff. And when his parents came to the hospital, I also went to the hospital with this other cousin. And, and his mom jumped up and she said, Charlene, Charlene, he, he wasn't drinking, he wasn't drinking. So I'm not worried about that. I, I'm not concerned about that at all. But I need to be the one to tell him that these two men were killed because if I don't tell him, he'll never talk to me again. And if he never talks to me again, he will never heal. This was not his fault. It was a horrible accident. And when people said, yeah, but he was driving too fast, driving too fast. Did you ever drive with Martin? Because his speed was too fast. Always, always too fast. And so I can't, I can't even blame Barry for that. And I told him what happened and held him. And he just sobbed. I mean, how do you deal with that at 23 years old? 
knowing that you were driving the vehicle that killed two men who each had two kids who were about the same age. And he did pretty well. He did okay. Again, there were members of my husband's family that blamed him, called him their son's murderer, you know, stuff like just so stupid, mean, horrible stuff. And I stayed in contact with him for probably six or seven years and I lost contact with him. He just like he dropped off the face of the earth. And I had a brother-in-law who called me one day after I'd been married for, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years and to let me know that he had committed suicide, which oh my gosh, still breaks my heart. I hope that wherever he is, that he is okay and that he's found some peace. Yeah, that one was almost as hard as losing Martin. You know, we lost all three of them. Oh my gosh, that is so hard. Mm. Yeah, see, life's a not a beach. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> it's spelled the other way. It's spelled the other way. <laughs> oh my goodness. So how long did you live as a single mom widowed? I tell people a couple of years, but honestly, it was about a year and a half. And to a lot of people, that seems really fast. But if you have ever been widowed or lost something like that, you understand that time stays the same for everybody else, but it completely changes for you. My daughter was widowed four years ago, my youngest daughter, three-year-old son. Her husband was 35. He just went to sleep one day and had a massive heart attack and never woke up. And she was four and a half months pregnant. One day she said, how could you move on so fast? And I said, hold on. I'm going to tell you something. In three months, you're going to talk to somebody who says, wow, I can't believe Jeremy's already been gone for three months. And you're going to stand there and say, how in the heck could it only be three months? Because time just goes, I describe it as backwards in dog years. And so when I tell people, you know, like a year and a half or so, some of them just figure that it was just an escape. And others, I mean, unless you've been there, it's very easy to judge. And, yeah. and I think I've been guilty of doing that in the past until I was there. And so, yeah. It doesn't matter what it looks like to anyone else because they're not having to live through it. And, you know, like I said, I remarried. My husband adopted my two kids. We had four more and it's just, it hasn't been perfect. It's very difficult to figure out where your loyalties lie in a second marriage when you didn't ask for the first one to end and you didn't get to say goodbye. And so that's been a challenge. But I went back to church the week after he passed away and I've gone ever since. It took me a long time to find my testimony. And I'm glad it's strong because if it wasn't, there have been times that I would just walk away and said, you can keep this and then you can keep it. Everybody who is a member because... I don't want to be part of it, but I can't do that because I have a testimony of the gospel and of the Savior and, and of my Savior. And, and I have a testimony of the fact that people are crazy, <laughs> myself included, kind of nuts. We're just mortals trying to wade through this the very best way that we know. And we sometimes leave a path of destruction. Sometimes we leave a path of, you know, unicorns and fairy dust, but we're all, we're all just trying to, to do the very best we can. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you meet your new husband? I love love stories. Charlene's second husband's father was actually there the night of Martin's passing. He had come over to give her a blessing. And for those of you who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe the men of our church at certain ages can hold the priesthood, which is the power of God. So when they give blessings, they lay their hands on the person's head and speak a message from God to the person. There are healing blessings, comfort blessings, and more that I can't think of right now, <laughs> but there's your context. So it was 1.30 a.m., and this man came over to give Charlene this blessing. Later, his wife invited Charlene and the kids over for family home evenings every once in a while. Again, some context on that. Family home evening is a designated weeknight where everyone is home and you do an activity and or maybe a spiritual message together as a family. It looks different for everyone. While Charlene was there, she would always notice a picture of their son, who was out on a mission, hanging in their hallway. In general, missionaries back then left at age 19 and returned after the two-year mission, age 21. And every time I would pass it, it you'd kind of look at it and go, and just feel like I shouldn't be looking at it. You know, this is weird feeling. And so when he got home from his mission, he reported it. And I thought, man, 
he must have done something so that he couldn't go until he was a lot older because he just seemed a lot older than he was. And um, I heard him singing and told him he had a really nice singing voice. He said, thank you. And I used to sing in choir and whatever. So I called the music coordinator and said, hey, do you have a special musical number for Sunday? And she said, no. And I said, I'd like to sing. And Ken Paul, we're going to sing together. I love you. You just make whatever happen happen. <laughs> yeah. And she said, okay. So I got a hold of him and I said, hey, we're singing in sacrament meeting Sunday. And he said, what? What? And he's a little, I love doing that stuff. He is just kind of like freezes up. And I said, yeah, so we need to practice. So we practiced. And the night before we were supposed to sing, he came over and we practiced and he brought the makings for homemade raspberry ice cream. He got really concerned when my Two and a half year old was sucking salt water off of the garage floor. And I said, ah, he's fine. He sucks water from under the pomegranate tree. So, you know, he's got a good immune system. So, but we talked all night long. And I remember saying, I just had to figure out how old he was. And I said, so when did you graduate? And he said, 1984. That shocked Charlene. So he did go out on a mission at 19 years old which makes him 21 right now. Charlene was a few months away from turning 30. She wasn't going to tell him that information right now, though. Yeah, and so he said, so when did you graduate? It's like, oh, I'm not telling him. (laughs) Well, before you, before you. And we sang in sacrament meeting the next day. I sat with him and his family. He reached over and held my hand and, you know, Bob's your uncle. It was kind of been together ever since. But I didn't tell my mom and dad or any of my family how old he was for five years. I couldn't tell them that he was almost eight and a half years younger than me because, I mean, that sounds creepy. It <laughs> just really sounds, you know, sounds like cougarish, you know, but it's, it's worked out really well. We're in the same decade occasionally. Occasionally. But not very often. <laughs> I just love how real Charlene is. I love how she just says it out straight. So they went to a reunion of Ken's mission and picture this, the whole group of young or single people introducing their boyfriend or girlfriends. Maybe a few of them had fiancés, but no one had kids. I felt so out of place. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to go stand in the corner with the kids and I'm just going to watch. So I stood and the mission president had everybody introduce themselves. And and I'm listening to the whole thing and thinking, man, I am so so out of my element here, so out of my element here. These people graduated from high school long after I did. And so the mission president stands up and said, Sister Paul, we haven't heard from you. Can you introduce (laughs) yourself? And okay. So I said, I'm Charlene Paul, married to Ken. Our first son was born when Ken was 16. Our second son was born two weeks after he left the MTC for Guatemala. And our (laughs) third son was born nine months and four days after we got married which is all the truth. And it just went dead quiet, just dead silent. I looked at my husband, his jaw dropped like, what? what? <laughs> did you have to say it like that? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, I did. Actually, I did. Because that's just wow. I that's just how I do things. So the mission president stands up at the mic and he goes, you know, it's a really good story. If you get a chance, get her to fill in the blanks. So I love and, that. I love you. Like, I love okay. how you just say it how it is. Like, that's creepy. I'm like, I never thought that was creepy, but other people will. But I am not a judgmental person, I guess. But yeah, yeah. You just say how it is. <laughs> well, Ken learned then that, I mean, this was just a precursor to what life was going to be for him. And so, you know, I wasn't born with much of a filter. And the older I get, the less I care about the fact that I don't have a filter. And Ken is very filtered. So we, we're good for each other. I can relate. My That sounds like me and my husband. So I guess it's only getting worse. I thought it was going to get better, but I guess it'll only get worse. But we get more used to each other, so it gets better. <laughs> you just figure out how to deal with it. I think my husband, my husband has finally stopped being surprised. Like, yeah, I just know to never expect anything out of your mouth. Like, to know the unexpected is coming. <laughs> I used to feel guilty, like maybe I'm embarrassing him or something, but now I'm like, he married me. He knew, and I never hid anything. I was exactly like this when we were dating, so he chose this. (laughs) And you be you. You don't have to be anybody else. You just be you, and that's good. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to be. I encourage you to take that advice, too. Let's make a pact right now. Let's just be ourselves. So where does the story go from here? As you know, 
No one gets just one difficult challenge in life. But before we go on, let's take a little break. Are these your pain points? Numbness. Do you feel emotionally numb, distant, as though you're living behind a glass wall? Anxiety. Do you feel shattered and immobilized by an overwhelming experience in your past? Disconnect. Do you feel disconnected from your loved ones and unable to find any real pleasure in life? You are not alone. I've been there. You can start today to trade numbness for resilience, anxiety for empowerment, and disconnection for determination to truly thrive again. My mom created a coaching program specifically for women who have been traumatized. If you've been curious about what life coaching might look like, join her for Red Eye Live, late night coaching for women. Instead of laying awake stressed at night, join us as she takes me through her program. It's real, it's raw, and if you want to be coached for free, you can sign up to be coached on Red Eye Live as well. Go to livelifered.com. Link, of course, in the show notes. Back to the story. Charlene is remarried, and since she's an expert in marriage now, the second one goes just perfectly. Right? Well, maybe in fairy tales. So how long have you guys been married now? We will celebrate our 35th anniversary in December. Oh, congratulations. And it hasn't been all, you know, unicorns and fairy dust. It's been very difficult at times. I went through a massive major depression in 2001 when my oldest son was getting ready to graduate from high school. And part of that was from just having not dealt with some of the grief stages, like especially the anger stage. Way back when he comes back and bites you. And I had to work through a lot of that. And Do you know what triggered that for you? I didn't at first. Everybody figured it was hormones. You're getting ready to go through menopause and all. Yeah, let's fix it with hormones, right? And so when I finally agreed to counseling, after walking down the road and telling my husband I knew what it was, I knew that I was, you know, that person, but I couldn't do anything about it. I mean, I really couldn't do anything about it. And I couldn't. You get the same answers, you know, read your scriptures more, pray more, serve more, do, you know, but I was, I was sick. I was sick. And when I finally went into counseling and came back and talked to my bishop, I said, you need to take this depression stuff very seriously. He was a paramedic. So I said, if you ran into somebody who had a compound fracture, right? Their arm is broken, bones sticking out. Blood is spurting everywhere. Would you tell him to bake a casserole for the neighbor? Or to pray it away? <laughs> yeah. And he goes, he goes, no. And he said, well, I have a compound fracture in my brain. And more praying, more scripture reading, more service isn't helping it. It's just not. It is a mental illness. And I was ashamed and embarrassed. And I was never going to tell anybody that. And But I just call it what it is. If I had kidney disease, I would call it kidney disease. I have a mental illness and I am medicated for it. And I will be for the rest of my life. And I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. But what kicked it off when I went to the counselor, she's just talking about PTSD and how that trauma gets sometimes not put where it needs to be. It doesn't get filed in the right place. So when my son was getting ready to graduate from high school, he was going to be leaving. And somewhere in my brain that kicked back to, I'm going to lose him. I'm going to lose him. I'm going to bury him. I'm going to something. And having to work through all of that. And I still have to work through a lot of stuff. I can't stand out in the road and wave to my kids as they pull away because that's what I did that morning with Martin. I can't do it. And so I just don't. I expect them to call me, even as adults. When you get home, just let me know you made it safely. And then there are some times that I have to just walk into my bedroom and say, okay, this is reality. This is not. This is what if. This is right now. So yeah, that's what kicked it off. I ended up gaining 100 pounds. They finally did put me on an antidepressant. Six weeks later, Charlene returned to the doctor, having had gained 30 pounds. He said, you feel better, right? I said, no. And he said, yeah, but if you think about it, you feel better, right? And I said, no, actually, I don't. And I've gained 30 pounds. He goes, well, you know, weight gain, that's kind of a side effect of antidepressants. I said, what brilliant mind decided to think it was okay to give an already depressed mind medicine that would destroy their body image at the same time. And he just, he had nothing to say. And I still have that question. I still want to know why that, no, that doesn't fix it. So we went through a lot of things and tried to figure out 
what finally worked and I finally found something and carried that weight and fought with it for till about 2015 when I had some surgery to take care of it and lost a bunch. I gained some back, but not that much. And, you know, just kind of, it's part of life, but. Yeah. All the side effects of medicine are frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. Side effects of mortality. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that you just said that. That is so true. And it's crazy how you can think something's gone. Like my son is five years old now. I don't know if you know my whole son's story, but I was in the room when he coded through his heart surgeries and stuff. It just took until this year, like something triggered it. Actually started my podcast and hearing everyone else's stories triggered it in me. And so, yeah, I've been recently on my mental health journey, but it's crazy how that happened in 2017 and it didn't show up for me until 2022. Trauma is just sitting there waiting until you eventually you have to answer to it and you have to get it resolved because it, yeah. it, it doesn't just go away. You can't just stuff it in a box and leave it there forever. It will surface eventually. Yeah. And it's part of who you are and it's hard. I mean, it really is hard. And the, I think the hardest part being a mom and having all that stuff happen is that you really need to be in intensive care, not in the hospital, but intensively caring for yourself. And then you have to make sure that there's three meals a day and there's laundry done and beds get made and things get picked up and you run the errands and grocery shop. And that's makes intensive care very, very, very difficult. And, and you have to make time to take care of that or it will destroy you. It will destroy your peace of mind. And that's a hard thing to get back. So I thought of an uncomfortable question, but having had two husbands, one that you didn't want to get rid of, and then the second one, is there ever that comparison where you think like, oh, he wouldn't have done that? Does that stuff happen or not really? Yeah, it's hard not to make it. My first husband was, he could tear apart a car engine, put it back together, he could wire a house, he could plumb a swimming pool, he could do. My second husband is not handy like that. And... So I've been the one that's taking care of the service for the cars and making sure things are done and stuff. And I've gotten frustrated about that sometimes and thinking, okay, no, stop. But think about the things that that Ken does that Martin didn't do or couldn't do or whatever. And so, yeah, you got to kind of talk yourself down from that. And one of the hardest things is calling the second one by the first one's name, sometimes at the most inopportune of times. And kind of going, it's just a habit. It's just a habit. It doesn't happen much anymore. Occasionally, once in a while, but it's like, okay. But he's been understanding of it. Oh my gosh. So He sounds so sweet. You never think of these things until I put myself in other people's shoes and I'm like, dang, having two husbands. As I think about comparison, I sometimes get so frustrated that I do it. But we were raised to compare. What did we learn in kindergarten? Sort things. Compare how many sides they have. Compare what's bigger, what's better, what color are they. So this is something so deeply ingrained in us. Some people can use comparison in a positive way that makes them better. However, I have not found a positive way yet. I naturally tend to use it negatively. Yeah, it's hard because you compare yourself. And the more you compare yourself to somebody else, the more you're comparing everybody else. It's that Mm -hmm. scripture, you know, judge not that you be not judged. I think that that's as much for mortality as it is for somewhere at the judgment seat someday. The harder I judge others, the harder I judge myself. And the harder I judge myself, the harder I judge others. And so it's it's like this circle thing. And I it's like they people speed me down the freeway. When they get on my, it bugs me. It drives me crazy. And so I will say, sometimes out loud, you know, maybe his wife is in labor and he's just trying to get her to the hospital. I don't know why he's speeding down the road. And it's really not my business unless he causes me some great harm. And so why give it a whole lot of thought time? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is so true. I love that you just said that idea of really how hard you are on yourself is how hard you are on others. Because one of my messages of the podcast is as you hear other people's stories, you find more compassion for them. And as you're finding more compassion for them, you also at the same time are finding compassion for yourself. So it's crazy just learning to give grace to yourself and to others. And I love that you didn't like super harshly judge yourself like, oh, dang, I called my husband the wrong name. People can really double think that and really make themselves feel bad. But it was just a habit. Grace. 
grace. We all need a little bit of grace. The world is hard enough without ourselves beating ourselves up or beating each other up. <laughs> right. Well, and how many times as a kid did you ever call a teacher mom? Yeah. It's just a habit. It's just, it just kind of comes out. It's really, honestly, it is the same thing. Especially so. people like us, I feel like our brains are running really fast. Yeah. Whatever's yeah. in there is going to fly out. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it just kind of does. And But I love what you said about the stories because that's my, I've heard a long time teaching people how to write their stories, not your life story, because that seems overwhelming, but just stories, just the stories that you remember, because that's the only way that you will continue to live. You know, a few generations from now, nobody will remember you because there is no way they didn't walk the earth when you did. But in order to be known, you got to write your stories down. And that's my thing. You know, you could really love almost anybody if you knew their stories. Because even the one who is so put together isn't so put together sometimes. You know, everybody has a story. Mm -hmm. They're just humans, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're all just humans. And like you said, humans are crazy. We're all a little crazy. We are by grand design. I love it. So what does your life look like now? You know, it's funny because my kids are going, mom, why can't you just enjoy the stage of your life? I said, well, I am. But their point is I started a business in November of 2019, a speaking and coaching business. And it was just, you know, things were kind of picking up and, and doing some family history things and, and other speaking and stuff. And then March 2020 hit and the bottom fell out of the world. And I didn't know a lot about all the Facebook marketing and getting in front of an audience. I got that one down. I can do that in person. But like this, I just wasn't sure how to do it. So I've kind of bumbled about that a little bit. I've taken the last four and a half years to write a man's story who it's, it's a very interesting story and it's taken a ton of time and a ton of emotions on my part just for this guy and what he's gone through. I finally got that one done. And that's at the, the publisher now in layout, which is kind of exciting. It should be out in October. And then working on trying to put together some courses for widows, helping them get through their grief, move forward. And so just go, can't, can't you just enjoy it? I said, but I am. I mean, I was a stay-at-home mom most of 33 years. I did some substitute teaching in that. But now I'm doing things that I want to do. My husband just retired from education after 30 years this year, just last month. But he's started another career with our son. And so they're working long distance together in that. So what life looks for me right now is that I like baking designer cupcakes with my grandkids, spending time with my grandkids. I love to tell stories and listen to them and, you know, visiting our kids, supporting Ken in his thing that he's doing. And then writing and figuring out how to write an online course that needs to be done in the next three or four weeks and just kind of doing my own thing. And I, I love it. That's amazing. You mentioned that you're starting a course for widows and how to overcome grief. Can you just speak to grief for a moment? Yeah. I helped a girl, this young woman's husband had served a mission with my second son. My second son called me about five, six years ago told me that this guy had died. And mom, you got to get a hold of his wife. So I did. I waited for a couple of weeks. And I just said, told her who I was. And I said, I was widowed, you know, this many years ago. And if you ever need to talk, I'm here. And I've done that but for forever. That was something that I promised the Lord at praying way back then. Just said, if you get me through this, because this is going to, this is going to crush me. If you get me through this, I will never, ever not share I will never, ever not listen. I will never, ever not talk. And so I've talked to a lot of people who, any kind of loss, you know. And um, anyway, this gal started calling and, and we've become very good friends. And so in February, we put on together, we put a widow's retreat on in Disneyland. We had about 18 widows and I was the longest down the road. There was one that was five or six years down the road. And there was one that was six weeks, which was really too soon almost to be at a retreat. But watching them, listening to them and the, you know, the questions that they asked and, and then this little foursome, they're just darling. And they're, you know, they're doing pretty well. They're all in different stages, but there is one and she is so stuck. She is just 
absolutely stuck, cannot get past the grief. And she's four years down the road. And the grief will be there. I don't call it grief. I just call it memories. The memories are there and sometimes they hurt and sometimes they're very poignant. But you have to move forward, not move on. They never say move on because move on seems like you, know, you close the door and away you go. A lot of them say, and her big thing is, this isn't the life I wanted. You know, we didn't get to finish our story. Well, technically you did. You did get to finish your story. This is as far as your story went. You didn't get to finish the story that you wanted to write. I didn't get to finish the story that I wanted to write. If I had been able to write my own story at this point in time, I would be writing horses in the sunset and just, you know, eating ice cream that doesn't make you gain weight. And But that's not the story that I get to write. And so helping them understand that you're still writing your book and it's okay and you have to turn that page. You can go back, but you have to turn that page because you have to move forward. And I believe very strongly that you have a right to be happy and you have a right to find joy, but it is your responsibility to figure out how to do that. Nobody can do that for you and not even God will do that for you. You have to figure it out and you have to be okay with it. And that, that gets you kind of hung up. And in this retreat, some of the comments were, yeah, but he's, but he's gone. He's missing all of this. He's missing. It just hurts thinking that he's, and so when I talked to them, I said, I'm going to flip the script on you. That's a big one. You know, I'm going to flip the script on you. So now you guys are dead. You're the dead ones. This is where dead people are in my talk. This is where dead people are right here. And on the other side of that wall are your husbands. They're light. They're left in mortality. And you know that they're hurting and you know that they're struggling and you know that some of them are doing better than others, and some of them are just spinning their wheels. If you had a chance to talk to them, and you can't tell them that you wish you could come back, and you can't tell them that you wish you could take them there, you can't tell them any of that. That's off the table. What would you tell them, knowing the pain that they're going through right now? And it, it just went dead silent, really quiet. And one woman finally raised her hand, and she said, I would tell him, just go on, just be happy. Don't mourn me forever. Please don't waste your time mourning me. Remember me, but move forward. It's like, yes, that's exactly, that's exactly, it's what I would tell my spouse if I passed away. I wouldn't want him to be, I mean, I don't want to be forgotten, but I don't want him to be so stuck. And so that's my biggest thing, you know, this isn't the life you wanted. Okay, so let's flip the script. But it's the life you have. Now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to spend the rest of your life wishing for something that you couldn't have? Or are you going to spend the rest of your life making it the best that you could possibly be? Because I'm telling you, I didn't want what I had. I didn't want what I got. No way did I want what I got. I did not want to be a widow. I did not want to be a single mom. I did not want to try to figure that kind of stuff out. But I didn't have any choice. You know, I like a two-year-old can throw a fit and say, yeah, I don't want it. I don't want it. But it doesn't change it. Yeah. Like, imagine if when you were little, there was a storybook that was Charlene's life. Like, she gets married. She has a hard marriage. Then finally, it's beautiful. And then he dies. And then she waits. I don't know. She meets this other guy. And he's like eight years younger. You'd be like, this is a stupid book. But look how beautiful it, you're living it. This is why we don't get to read our story first, because when we're living it, it's it's a gift. It's beautiful. If we read it before, we'd be like, we are not signing up for that. Yeah. I told somebody one time, I said, I just want to look at the last page. I just want to see the last page. And then I told my husband after I got married to him, I said, you know, I'm glad I didn't get to see the last page because if I just saw that seeing that my last name was Paul, the only Paul that I knew was your dad. I would have figured your mom died in some way or the other. I married your dad. And he goes, well, that's creepy. And I said, that's why I'm glad I didn't get to read the last page because I would probably have run for the hills. I mean, I love your dad, but. Don't want to marry him. <laughs> yeah. No, no. So the whole thing is hope. You know, you just have to keep hanging on to hope. Or you're not going to make it. Mentally, yeah. you're not going to make it. And maybe not even physically. Yeah. Well, you already have helped so many people. So I hope that this story finds those carrying grief who 
who need to hear it is kind of a hard thing. That's kind of a hard thing to hear, like move forward. I love what you said, move forward, not move on because you're not forgetting them. Mm-mm. It's not like they didn't matter. And I think there's probably that guilt of I can't be happy, but they want you to be happy. Yeah. How can I be happy if they're not here? What right do I have to be happy? That's a big thing. Well, you have every right to be happy and responsibility to be happy. And the fact of the matter is, if you are married, 50%, at least 50% of married people are going to either be a widow or a widower. You know, somebody in this marriage is going to die and somebody is going to get left behind unless you're both killed in the same car accident. Nobody gets out of this life alive. It is every bit as much a part of life as birth. You know, when you're born, really, you're born to live. You're also born to die because that's just part of it. And mourning and grieving is also part of that process. But you don't want to live there. It's probably the easiest place to be, but it is the hardest thing to live. And so you have to get unstuck. You have to move forward because stuck is a horrible, 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 horrible place to live. No matter how hard it is to get unstuck, it doesn't even hold a candle to how how horrible it is to stay stuck. And I think that really applies, especially in losing a loved one, but just loss in general. Life is full of loss and we can grieve that storybook that we thought we were going to have and no one's life is going to turn out. I mean, I can't, I can't say no one's life, but life is going to be hard. We're all going to lose things, things that weren't planned. Yep. I just love this message of grief because it's not always about losing someone. Like I grieved the life of wanting a healthy child and didn't get that, you know, even yeah. though he didn't die. It was people have told me lately, like, don't minimize what you went through, even though he's alive. What you went through was really, really hard. And I'm like, okay, because sometimes I'm like, well, so many of my friends lost their children. I shouldn't be sad. I should just think I'm lucky he's alive. But you're allowed to grieve the life you thought you were going to have when you don't get it exactly that way. But don't get stuck. That's very important. You don't ever try to quantify your grief. I had a lady who told me about another woman whose husband died and she actually saw him, you know, and got in a horrible accident and actually went, saw his body, found him and, and that. And she said, see, Charlene, you can always find somebody who has it worse than you. And it hit me funny. And then several years later, I was teaching a Relief Society and I said, I'm going to tell you my story. And I know that it's not as difficult as some of yours. Some of you have gone through way harder things than I have. But for me, this is the most difficult thing that I have gone through. And that's, that one drives me crazy. You, you, you just, you can't compare what, what you've been through to what other people have been through because, you know, you just can't. You weren't asked to walk their path and they weren't asked to walk yours. And if you minimize your grief because others actually lost their children, then you're not giving yourself time to heal. You're going to keep that wound open. That's, that's a huge thing, Chelsea. And what do you, what you wanted and what you hoped for and what you got. And then watching that, I cannot imagine going through watching something like that and wondering if he if he is going to survive or if he is going to is this you know all the changes that that are going to be that is huge and you you deserve to grieve and you deserve to grieve in your own way in your own time and not be stuck don't get stuck yeah. there yeah i think getting stuck is when we try to box it away i think yeah moving through it because we're avoiding feeling the uncomfortable feelings emotions yeah. And then we judge ourselves for them. But I found so much through all of the therapy I've been going through, moving through it. My mom is a life coach too. And she coaches women who has been through traumatic events. And one of the women she's working with, she said, like, if you were angry at someone, what would be a way that helped you get unangry? And she gave the example of like, maybe get doing service sometimes. And so if you're angry at yourself, she's like, well, what's a good way you can serve yourself? And my own answer to that, as I was watching, was like, the way I would serve myself is to let myself feel what I need to feel. Like that is a huge service to yourself. You just have to process it. Just feel it. Stop trying to avoid it. And that's been the biggest help for me. And as I processed it, I realized what I was getting stuck on and why why I was so sad is because every time I would go back to that memory in my head, I was seeing him as he is now. So he was what? 
That was December 2017. He was six months old. So it was a six-month baby that I saw. But every time I thought about it, he was one. He was two. He was five. However he is now, I look at him, and then when I remember that, I would see him as that. And so to me, my child did die. I kept seeing my child dead. Even though I have him, he's alive, he's here, but my brain wasn't processing that. So I'm so grateful for the therapy I went to because now I have processed it. I did association replacement therapy. I don't know if you've ever done that. It's really cool where you like replace the image in your mind. So now I know the facts of what happened and I can remember back to it, but I don't have all of that. Like I used to not be able to talk about it without bawling, but now I can. Yeah. Last memory that I replaced it with is I had walked across the bridge from everything that I did. It's a long story. But after I processed the emotion, replaced it, and then I walked across the bridge and turned around to like look across the bridge. But I was like looking at myself turning around to look back. And I had Jackson with me holding my hand. So it was like a moment of my brain realizing, you actually have, look, I got goosebumps. It's so yeah, cool. Yeah. I have him. I'm, I have him. My brain yeah. wasn't letting me believe that I had him, but I have him and I'm so blessed. So yeah, it's, you got to just process it. Yeah. It's just kind of crazy. But now you look at yourself too and look at the woman you are. Did you, before you ever went through something like this, did you think you ever could go through something like this? No. And I didn't have any empathy for other people. And I was probably the little Molly Mormon girl that looked at everyone and was just like, why aren't you all not cussing? And why aren't you all just going to church and doing what you're supposed to? And now, like, I would say shallow is the word. Like, I just had one view. And now I have depth and I have love and I see people for who they are and allow them to be who they are with no judgment. Yeah. And I'm grateful. I love who I am. I'm a pretty nice person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are. You are. And I, I could tell that when you very first came on board as a moderator and just very, very kind and very sweet, but very strong. Stronger than you probably even think you are. And you, when you can look back, somebody made the comment the other day, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking backward. And I thought, dude, that's so very true. It makes so much sense. So the other thing that I tell these widows or whoever else I think needs to hear it is that you might not feel like you're standing, but if you're still breathing, if you're still standing, you might be bruised, you might be battered, you might be beaten up. But if you're still breathing, you are 100% for getting through hard things. 100%. You can't get Vegas odds for that. You know, there's nothing 100% there. And so, you know, give yourself a pat on the back. You might not have come through squeaky clean or none of us do, but you doing it. So with all of that being said, are you ready for the last question? Sure. After everything, what do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? Beyond the white picket fence. I wish that they knew that I'm, I'm there. I love talking to people. I love helping people. I, I don't want them to think I'm a busybody and some of them do. Some of my kids do. But it's out of genuine care and genuine love and genuine concern. And beyond my white picket fence, oh, there's a mess back there. There's a really pristine sitting room, you know, looks really good. Everything's good. And then there are piles of life back there. Because I have a lot of people that, that will make comments, and this is going to sound very self-centered, but make comments about, you know, you, you always seem so put together and, and you always seem so... You know, I have one girl that said, I would have thought you were like a governor or something. It's like, not me. And I don't know if it's the white hair. I don't know if it's <laughs> that, I, that I put the, see this? I can smash it in and it comes back. That's a lot of hairspray right there. Because <laughs> I don't want it, I don't want it to move. And what I want them to know beyond, beyond that is that I might look all put together, but I'm not really all that much more put together than most anybody out there. We all have our messes. My mom would say it. I'm not going to tell you exactly the way my mom would say it because she was she was a salty little bugger, but she would say, yeah, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. So basically, you know, we're not that different from each other. And that's what I would like them to know. Thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond the Picket Fence. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Feel free to reach out to me through my Instagram, Facebook DMs, or through my website. And remember... 
Be kind, because you never know what's going on for someone beyond the picket fence. Do you ever feel a little bit exhausted by your social media feed? Seeing everyone else's perfect moments and forget that they have a whole life going on behind the scenes? Don't you wish that there was a place to connect with people in a more authentic way? A place where the imperfection and messiness of life is celebrated? Well, if you want to connect with others like you, who are celebrate the good times and are real about the not-so-good times, then join us in the Beyond the Picket Fence Facebook group. It's our secret corner of the internet where you can escape all of the highlight reels and create more meaningful connections. Let's stop comparing and start being compassionate towards others, and especially ourselves. Find it at facebook.com slash groups slash Beyond the Picket Fence. Link also in the show notes. Can't wait to see you in there. Thanks for listening. Bye.